And I would just encourage you to go back and you can listen to or you can watch if you'd like to look at my face. You can watch the, uh, the video archive of what we've gone through thus far. And, and I'll just quickly say that as we got into it, I realized, <clears throat> well, not realized, but was under, under more of a clear conviction that 1 Corinthians does not encapsulate every spiritual gift that God has given to his church. It's Paul, he's speaking to his church, he's speaking to Corinth, a very contextual application of a need to bring correction around certain things. But as we have discussed and studied, the gifts of the Spirit are the grace manifestations of the Spirit of God upon his church. It is the manifestation of grace. It is the empowering of the Spirit of God to act beyond what is normal within the temporal Christian life, to act beyond what is normal unto the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have these examples, particularly within 1 Corinthians and in other places and in Romans 12, we have these examples and they're given to the church and they're given in a corporate context because Paul wants to address these, the, the corporate aspect of the gifts of the Spirit. Their purpose, his, God's intention for giving them to his church, how we ought to expect to interact and pursue together in faith. And so this is the journey that we've been on. And so I'm come today, and we're going to dive into another portion of 1 Corinthians as we're just using it as a bit of a, as a guider. Is that a word? I uh, know, you guys knew that. And it's like I put a pregnant pause on the end of it as a guider of more. This <laughs> is bad. That was bad. But see... I know. I knew it. Like I said it, and I knew it too. Everybody has a better, yeah, has a better example. A gooder example. So we're using 1 Corinthians 12 as a bit of a guide to go through some of the, maybe perhaps the more difficult, the more miraculous, you might say, examples of the spiritual gifts given to the church. So I want to do something this morning very quickly, and you don't have to participate if you don't want, but I think we're all comfortable and familiar enough with each other that this is not a judgment thing. This is really just a bit of a barometer, if you will. So by a show of hands, I would ask, when I say the phrase gift of tongues, who gets a little bit uncomfortable? You can put your hand up. If you get, It's all right. Put your hand up. It's not, no one's judging you. Okay. By the same show of hands, when I say the phrase gift of tongues, who gets a little excited? Anybody? Okay. We got some to get excited here. That's good. How about this? How many have desired to experience the gift of tongues? That is, experience the utterance of unintelligible words, but have not. How many have desired but have not? Desire but have not. Okay. How about how many of you have experienced this grace gift personally in your life? Did you show your hands for that? We're, I don't know if you guys looked around. There's quite a mix. It's like we're, we're all over this spectrum here this morning. So this is going to be fun. So as you could probably imagine this morning, what I want to do is I want to speak on the gift of administration. <laughs> I just was curious how many of you are into tongues. Put that as the title of this morning. Who's into tongues? All right, let's read together the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
Father, we thank you for your word that is a guiding light. Lord, illuminate it to our hearts this morning by your spirit. Bring clarity to misunderstanding. Bring conformity, Lord, where we are out of line. And Father, we pray these things that it would be unto your glory, not to us, but to you and to you alone, O Lord. Magnify yourself within our church, we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm going to begin just reading from verse 7 as we have read thus far already. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. If you've not by now underlined that within your Bible. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And I would encourage you with verse 11 to underline that as well. All are empowered by one and of the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And I won't go back to reteach that portion, but that's so incredibly important for us to remember regardless of what we're speaking of when we're talking about the charisma, which is the word that Paul uses in the Greek for gifts. It's the charisma, it's the same word, it's charis, where we get the word grace, which is why I use the descriptive of the grace expressions within the church. It's important to remember what Paul says in verse 11, that each is given, that all by the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. These grace expressions are the movement of the Spirit of God within his church. And one of the the misconceptions that the church, the evangelical charismatic church has long, long held, if you will, or at times you have heard taught, is that these gifts are ours to possess. They are ours, and and we've talked about this, and there's tests that we go looking for to tell you what your spiritual gift is, and once you have it, you've got it, and congratulations. But what I'm here to say to you this morning is that according to Scripture, both very clear in verse 7, that to each is the manifestation given for the common good, to each one of us, whether you've experienced it or not, it's God's desire that you would experience the manifestation of his grace for the building up of the church, which we'll look at more this morning. And it is the Spirit of God who gives to each the measure that he so desires in that moment as he wills according to his perfect will. Amen? So I want to begin this morning, I think it's necessary in my mind that we actually begin today's subject with a bit of a reminder of the primary aim that we set out for at the beginning of this series. And I found it particularly necessary this morning that we would not only simply believe that these manifestations or be so convinced in our minds that these manifestations of grace are true, that we would not just believe that because I think by and large, now there's an assumption I should say here this morning that As Capital City Church, we are continuationists in our belief of the gifts of the Spirit. So in other words, we do not believe that they have ceased, but we we believe that they in fact continue. That is an assumption here. So that our aim would be not just to be so biblically convinced of like, yeah, okay, all right, right, I 
I can accept that as being true. I might not experience it or pursue it or believe it in faith, but I'll accept that as being true. But to move beyond that, that we would see as a church, for this church, this is what I believe God is speaking to us, that their importance, to understand their importance and in turn pursue their manifestation in and through our lives. And I understand that that statement probably needs some clarifying as well, which hopefully I've done thus far. Because if you hear that, you might just think that we're just going to run after the things of the Spirit, and that's not what I'm saying here this morning. These things are given to us on a rich, wide, deep, and firm biblical foundation, with the Scripture being the plumb line by which we hold all things against. Amen? And of course, the gifts from the Spirit of God must also be held in accordance with Scripture. But for us as a faith community, that we would get that, make that so difficult journey, what we call the 16-inch journey, from our head to our hearts, which is one of the longest ones in the Christian life that you'll ever go on, that we would go from understanding it to actually not just believing it, but desiring it, understanding their importance and pursuing them together for the common good and for the building up of Capital City Church. And I would like to say that we know that this is Paul's aim as well, because he introduces this subject of the gifts by saying in chapter 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. But as I explained the first week into it, the probably the better rendering of that verse is this. Now concerning spiritual things, spiritual things, and Kevin even spoke on this last week, that that word is pneumatikas, pneumatikas, which essentially speaks of that which comes from God and God alone supernaturally. So Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be ignorant. That's, what, that's that word uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant about these spiritual things. And then he goes on to explain what these spiritual things are. And as I've been saying, church, we are spiritual beings, are we not? Can we agree on that much? We are spiritual beings. As Rick spoke of this morning, as, as Titus tells us so well, it's by the Spirit of God that we have become regenerate. We have been washed and made new. We are spiritual beings. And so Paul has the same aim. He's going, I don't want you to be uninformed. Church, I don't want us to be uninformed. I don't want us to be ignorant. I don't want us to be lacking in any knowledge or an awareness of this subject. And so my desire in this study is that we would aim for this same thing as well, to not be ignorant about the spiritual things that God has given to us and created us in. And I would say what's more is that we're obligated as believers, as, as passionate Christ followers, we are obligated to resolve within our own hearts the apprehension, the conflict, and the misunderstanding. That is ours before God to be obedient, to resolve those things when it comes to biblical truth in order that we would be consistent living with Scripture. And not only our thinking and our understanding, but also in our behavior, right? So part of how we do this is by ensuring that we hold a right perspective. I was talking with one of the guys here in the church this last weekend, and I was saying that it's interesting that we readily as believers accept probably 99.9% of the work of the Spirit in our life. We readily accept that, right? As normative, I'm saying. 
But yet when it comes to the language of the Spirit or heavenly language, we recoil because we find it so odd, absurd, offensive, uncomfortable, you know, whatever descriptive you want to use for how you feel about it. I want you just to consider this for a moment. We know that it is, of course, by the Spirit that, as I said a moment ago, we are regenerated, and we know that the Spirit of God indwells us, right? We all agree on that, amen? If we're a believer, we ought to agree on that, okay? But what about the other aspects of our lives where the Bible teaches that how we operate in our everyday lives, in our moment-to-moment lives, is, or at least ought to be, under the unction of the Spirit. There are other things that the Bible teaches us about the work of the Spirit in our lives beyond just regeneration and indwelling for sanctification. In Romans 8, Paul says that we walk by the Spirit. What does that insinuate? That's a daily, that's a moment enabling to live obediently the Christian life. We walk by the Spirit, Paul says. Same chapter later in his verses, Paul will say that we, uh, we pray by the Spirit in Romans 8.26. Same chapter, Romans 8, he says that we live by the Spirit or in the Spirit is the language that Paul uses. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that we understand and we believe by the Spirit. So we walk, we pray, we live within, and we believe and we understand by the Spirit. What else is, there's nothing left untouched in the life of a Christian that the Spirit of God is not involved in. And again, we readily accept those things as being normal, don't we? Every aspect of the Christian life is one that is done under the directive and the power of the Spirit of God. So I don't think it's that large of a logical step for us to then believe to say that we would also speak by the Spirit. I think it's a much smaller step than we often think that it is. And I understand that your reality is everything, and your reality might be like this, but what I'm appealing to you this morning is to say, consider the work of the Spirit of God on the life of the believer. Is it that much further than to say, yeah, okay, that we would also have a language by the Spirit of God? I just want to say again, church, Let's shake off the functional cessationism, the functional cessationist tendencies that we can sometimes have where we say we believe, where we say, yes, okay, I'll accept that, but yet we don't actually pursue in faith. Because I think what's at stake, church, is the mark of God's genuine church. And I'm not saying tongues is the only mark. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that it is one of the distinctives, that the charismata are a distinctive of God's people. That's what's at stake. And what we're endeavoring to do is, who who wants to live as biblically accurate as they possibly can in their life? Yeah, we all do. We all want to honor God as much as possible and submit to where we have erred. And I believe that Being a distinctive church is at risk when we discount these things. And then secondly, I felt as though some of us today need to repent for living with fear of men, for living with the fear of of looking or feeling foolish. And this morning, just as God speaks to us, pray for freedom in that area of your life. Freedom to live honestly. Freedom to 
to live genuinely and courage to live genuinely. A power-filled life, a God-glorifying, power-filled life. Right? Okay. So to help us in our pursuit this morning of a bit of normalizing this grace expression of tongues, I want to communicate two helpful points as I begin. And I just want to say they're not my thoughts, but they were so helpful for me just as I was studying and preparing for this morning that I thought I would share them with you because they're very encouraging. I found them to be really helpful, and they come from Wayne Grudem, and he's written a systematic theology, and many of you are familiar with that. We've done a study through it here at our church. But I'm I'm just going to simplify or summarize his points here as we begin. He points out this, that that the Greek word that is translated as tongue in this text is is the word glossa. It's the Greek word glossa. And it means, though, not only a physical tongue in your mouth, but it also means a language. And its definition is this. And listen, I want you to ponder this as I read it. As what I was just saying about the distinctiveness of God's people. Glossa, the word that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians, is defined as the language or the dialect used by a particular people distinct from that of other nations. That's the word that Paul uses here. It can be translated as tongue, as the literal tongue in your mouth, or as language. And in the usage of language, that is the definition. A language or dialect used by a particular people distinct from that of other nations. And Grudem says this, It's unfortunate that English translations have continued to use the phrase speaking in tongues, which is an expression not otherwise used in ordinary English, right? We can all acknowledge that. And which gives the impression of a strange experience, something completely foreign to ordinary human life. But if an English translation were to use the expression speaking in languages, it would not seem nearly as strange. And I thought that's absolutely true, just on the the surface level of it. If that was used, it might actually be a little bit more helpful. And then the second point which he makes, which is, which is a bit more thought-provoking, and I'm not going to go deep into this morning because it requires more time, is that if we want to understand God's purpose for something, we must consider the larger redemptive trajectory, okay? It's larger application within God's redemptive purpose, which in turn gives it context for the present Christian experience. You following what I'm saying? If we want to understand something that we experience now, let's put it in in God's bigger purpose for it within redemption. So in other words, it's not simply what does God say about tongues, but but what does God say or what does the Bible have to say about language in general and what is God's purpose in creating language? And I thought this was fascinating. Rudim traces... Language from the garden, through the fall, through Israel, sorry, what is, um, yeah, he, tra- he traces it from the garden, through the fall, through Israel, and God's purpose in them having a distinct and unique language, through Jesus and the new creation and into eternity. He traces it throughout the entire narrative of redemption. And ultimately, he concludes this one thing. The purpose of language is to unify God's people in worship and service of him. Okay, just stay with me here this morning, okay? 
what was a language of unified worship in the garden, right? A language of unified worship and service in the garden through the fall, this is Grudem now, became a language of unified opposition, he says, to God. And we see the culmination of that in Babel, right? And we understand what God does in Babel. And so God disrupts man's unity against him. And then we see that language is foreshadowed in its true purpose in Israel, redeemed through Jesus Christ as all things are in now the place and in the moment of being fully redeemed, redeemed through Christ and shows us its final expression in the worship and the service of God in the book of Revelation. And we see that as all nations converge and thousands and myriads upon worship and serve the Lord Jesus Christ throughout all, throughout all eternity. So when we see it on this trajectory, church, and we see how God gave Israel their own language by which they would worship and serve him, one that was unique and one that was distinct. If you trace back the Hebrew language, one that is unique and distinct, and it was their own, it isn't difficult then to place the heavenly language within the new creation. If we understand redemptive history and where we now fall on that timeline, are you guys following me? We find ourselves today on this side of the cross, or if you're facing me, it's on this side of the cross. We live on this side of the cross in what is now, what's called the now and the not yet, where God, Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, but yet we know that the kingdom of God is fully will come one day. And we now are, find ourselves as the new creation of Jesus Christ. And as part of his new creation, we live in this power of the age to come expressed here on the earth. So I just thought it was helpful when we consider that to, to put this in a good context Again, to help us connect these two spaces right here with each other. And as the new creation, what are we but a foreshadow and a taste of the future reality, aren't we? We are a foreshadow and a taste of the future reality of what will be, what we live and experience now. And what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit if not to be a guarantee and a deposit of what will be? Are you following my logic now? The Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit is a guarantee of a future reality. And if we know where we're going then, church, we'll anticipate certain markers along the way to confirm our right course. And I believe that the gift of heavenly language is one such marker. And I'm not saying, again, it's not the only, but it is a singular marker. It's an active presence by God's Spirit that is an indicator that we are His unique and distinct people called into worship and to service of the one true God. That is what I believe the purpose of tongues given to His church is. And then can I also just say, to draw our attention to the coincidence that here I stand on this day, speaking about this subject, on a day when we readily accept the historical reality of incantations, of chants, right? Of, of various foreign tongues, if you will, that have been given. And we even find entertainment and celebrate them. I was watching the Lord of the Rings recently with the kids. 
and all the things, you know, Gandalf's other languages and, and Harry Potter and the incantations and those, we, we, and we are entertained by those things. But yet, when it comes to the redeemed reality, we reject it. How absurd is that? It's pretty ridiculous. I think so. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 4, and I'm going to do this quickly. Also, oh, I forgot to say one thing as we begin. For those of you this morning um, who are a part of Capital City Church, and if you're visiting and you plan on coming back, I just want to give you uh, just a a, a quick um, heads up as to what my plan is. Next week, what I'd like to do is hold a portion of our time together as a bit of a Q&A, because we've been talking about things, and I think it would be helpful if we had opportunity to process together what, and it would be helpful for me to hear what have you been hearing, where might you have questions, what can be clarified, because the reality is, is I'm not going to be able to cover everything in 45 minutes or 55 minutes or 75 minutes, Becky. I don't know how long I'll go this morning, but I'm not going to have enough time to cover everything, so I thought it would just be helpful. So if you would be thinking about what has been said in the previous weeks, Perhaps what I say today, um, we're going to give probably about 15 or so minutes next week to just talking together about what's being heard, okay? So I'm going to do my best to cover as much as I can here this morning, and hopefully what I have said has already been very helpful. So I want to read 1 Corinthians 14. I'm going to begin in verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you would prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will, ready, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, Strive to excel in building up the church. Verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, 
I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than with 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and an outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For, verse 33, underline this, God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. And skip to 36, or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or a spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. I want to answer two questions today. The first is, what is the purpose of a tongue? And the second, how is, how is it used for the common good? What is the purpose of a tongue and how is it used for the common good? I'm incredibly thankful for chapter 14. Aren't you? That, that, that Paul, that, that, that God's correction has become our instruction, right? And actually, it's really clear. I, th I think it's actually very clear. And, and as I was reading and preparing this... I'll tell you, this is the first time I've ever taught on tongues before. And I was reading this and going, why is this so confusing? It seems so logical. I need to move along quickly. We're going to run out of time. <clears throat> so it's quite clear from Paul's description here, what it isn't is mindless babble. It isn't an out-of-body experience because he talks about being able to control it so as one goes and then another goes and another goes. So it's not some out-of-body experience. And it's not something where your, your faculties are just overpowered and you're not able to control yourself. That's what it isn't. That's pretty clear within Paul's instruction. Tongues is a gift to the believer. It's a gift. Think of that now. It is a gift to the believer whereby they engage in a meaningful articulation of words, although undecipherable, to our ears, which God hears and God understands. It's a gift given to believers, whereby the Spirit of God 
engages in meaningful with our spirit, a meaningful articulation, through although undecipherable to our ears, which God hears and understands. And so at the go, I would say there's a need for us to remind ourselves that all spiritual gifts, including tongues, exist to serve the common good and build up the body of Christ. All gifts exist to serve the common good and build up the body of Christ. That is clear. It's not for your own personal enjoyment. It's not for your own personal pursuit, although as I'll say in a moment, there is personal application to tongues. It is for the body. God has given the gifts to the church for the common good, to build us up together. This is their aim, and it's the measuring rod by which they must be held to. So a good working definition of tongues is this. Tongues is a gift by which the Spirit enables a Christian to pray, to give thanks, and to worship. God in ways that transcend what is possible if we speak only in our native language. That comes from Sam Storm's book, Understanding Spiritual Gifts. It is, a tongue is a gift by which the Spirit enables a Christian to pray, to give thanks, to worship God in ways that transcend what is possible if we speak only in our native language. So immediately then we can see that this manifestation of grace differs from prophecy or words of wisdom or words of utterance. And if you were with us, that might be a little bit more clear. And it even differs, of course, from gifts of healings and of faith and some of the others, all of which convey God's heart towards men. Instead, this is a gift that enables the believer to further their heart before God. Tongues, is, it's a vertical orientation, whereas the other gifts are given for the church from one unto another. But it's, a, it's an important orientation to understand. It is a vertical orientation from men and women to God. This is the first important point of what is a tongue. It's directed to God, Paul says, not towards man, and therefore, it's a form of prayer. So the first thing is, what is the purpose of a tongue? It is for prayer. Paul says in verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. And then he says a couple of verses later, and builds himself up. I just want to say that it's here that I personally experience this grace gift in my life. And I just want to be honest with you. And, and hopefully in my honesty, it encourages you. And some of you might have experienced this as well. It is God's grace. It is God's gift to me that when I am praying and I come to the end of myself, that the Holy Spirit enables me to continue in faith. I experience tongues as a literal empowering of God's spirit at times in my life, personally, in my own life of devotion and prayer. Think of this, when we tire in prayer, when our minds wander, when we run out of language in our native tongue, the gift of heavenly tongues becomes like a primer to our hearts and a means by which our faith can continue and in, remain engaged. It's probably one of the most practical ways that I personally experience the blessings of tongue in my life. How many of you have ever endeavored to pray for something for an extended period of time and have come to the end of your vocabulary, but in your heart you knew that you wanted to stay engaged? Who's experienced that before? That's not uncommon. 
when we pursue things in prayer and it's like, I just don't have the words. There is a gift that has been given to God's people. How wonderful is that, church? It is awesome. Secondly, Paul tells us that it is used as a form of praise. So it's used as prayer, it's used as praise. And he says this in verse 15 of chapter 14, I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. And again, let me just say from my own experience that often I find tongues to be a helpful form of personal worship. Sometimes I'll worship with words that are intelligible, my mind, which is what Paul's talking about. I will worship with words that are intelligible. But then again, sometimes, like the previous, I find myself at the end of my, I mean, how many times can I say, God, you are great. God, I love you. God, I worship you. God, I exalt you. Or we, we run through all that God has done. And it's like, even then, we come to the end of our language and we're just, ah, there's more I want to say. Who's experienced that before in worship? Have you experienced that? I have. I do regularly. I think it's akin to, as I was thinking about it, to the doxologies of the New Testament writers where seemingly they're overwhelmed by the grandeur and the beauty and the majesty and the excellence of God and they break into worship in the middle of some kind of instruction. Paul's talking about something and he just gets caught up and and he's, oh, the depths of riches and wisdom. It's like the same thing where like you're just so caught up in praise and worship of God that you go into like a different space by the Spirit of God. I think that's a bit of what these New Testament writers experienced as they're writing and penning these letters. And we now call them doxologies and we, you know, we like to recite them. But it was in a moment of inspiration and adoration of who God was as they're penning these letters to other churches. And so Paul would say, I want all of you to speak in tongues, is what he says. We read it, verse 5. I want all of you to speak in tongues, he says. Why? To attest to your salvation? No. To enjoy and to reap the benefits of the gift that God gives to us for our own faith and for the building up of ourselves and of the church. Thirdly, it's a form of giving thanks. So tongues is prayer. The purpose of tongues is for prayer, for praise, and for giving thanks. And Paul is very clear about this in chapter 14. He says in verse 16, if you give thanks with your spirit, tongues, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? And so similar to the other two forms in that it's from our hearts towards God, but it's differing in that it's aim at times, unlike the petitions we make, or the contending that we do in prayer as we pursue in faith, or worshiping God, this form of tongue serves to help us in the expression of gratitude towards God. Again, in in comparison to some of the other gifts, when tongues is present in the corporate setting, we understand its orientation, that it is prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. I think these three simple orientations, church, bring tremendous clarity to our hearts as to God's intention of giving us this unction by the Spirit. I've I've been saying this the whole time. Let's demystify these things. Let's normalize them. 
let's, let's, as he said, like the language that we use perhaps or how we have thought about it at times have not made this helpful for us. And for whatever reason, this has become one that has just been more off-putting for people. But what I'm saying today, church, is this is beautiful. It's simple. It's enjoyable. It's faith-building. Amen? Hopefully. Hopefully that... Don't say amen if you don't believe it. I know you do, Judy. But it's important to also say that it's, this is only part of what Paul has in mind while instructing the church in Corinth. This is helpful for us to understand what a tongue is, but that's only part of it. Because it's obvious by reading this portion of the text that Paul is addressing the corporate expression of this grace gift. Seemingly, when they're coming together, we can deduce that many are speaking with a heavenly language without any thoughts, perhaps towards interpretation at times, and seemingly not in an orderly sense. So it would be like this morning, if somebody just stood up and started speaking in tongues and then sat back down again, and another person did it, that seems to be maybe a bit of what Paul is dealing with here in Corinth. And that poses a particular problem, I think, for the church, because what's intended to build the church up is actually bringing confusion. And given its difficult method of delivery and its indecipherable nature, tongues necessitates that Paul gives a bit of care and instruction on how it is to be used in the church and how it is to be visible and engaged in. And so the first thing that he says is that it is to be done. How is it used for the common good is the question. The first is that it is to be done with care for one another. It's to be done with care for one another. How is it for the common good if it is not for care? Paul says this in verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. I thought that was an interesting statement. You want to see the Spirit? Pursue the good, the common good of the church. Three things he's going to talk about, each holding the others in view. First, care for one another. Paul's saying, if you want to see the Spirit's manifestation, make the building up of your church your primary aim because that is the purpose of the Spirit's presence when you gather. You understand what I'm saying? That's why he manifests himself. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, In verse 19, he says, your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And in verse 22, he says, in him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is why we are here, church. You might think you're here because you had a tough week. I'm telling you, that's not the case. You are here because God is doing something by way of building us, unifying us, bringing us together and knitting us into purpose by His Spirit. This is not an individual play here. This is all play. We're all in right now. The manifestation of the Spirit is for the purpose of building up the church. This too should be our aim. We don't pursue the charismata for selfish gain. Listen to me. We don't pursue it for selfish gain. We don't pursue it out of pride or eagerness, or visibility. God, I'd really love to just look good by throwing out a prophecy this morning. I say it facetiously, but how oftentimes, at least for us who are more open, do we feel that way? 
man, it'd look really good right now if I could just do this. That is the antithesis of what Paul is saying. That is building up man and not building up the church to the glory of God. So we don't pursue it for those reasons, but rather we pursue the charismata, the grace gifts, the grace expressions, humbly, open-handed, knowing full well that we are jars of clay whom God has chosen to place his treasure within. Are we not? Let's remember who we are. Secondly, how, so how is it used for the common good? First, for care for one another. Secondly, with zeal. With zeal, three times Paul tells us to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Chapter 12, verse 30, 14, verse 1, and 14, verse 39. Three times in his short discourse on the gifts does he say earnestly desire them. The Greek for this phrase is zeluo, zeluo. It's where we get the word zeal in the English language. Strive after, Paul says. There's no passivity in Paul's mind for these things, church. There's no room for deciding whether or not it's something that we want to do. Paul is saying, strive after them. Exert yourself so that you might obtain these grace expressions. Don't squelch them out of fear of uncertainty. Don't squelch them because you're uncomfortable by it. But with the betterment of others, with the care of others in mind, pursue diligently these gifts that the church might be built up together. Do you see this picture that I'm trying to paint here this morning? And third, and very importantly, again, these are three things that go together. The common good with zeal, and zeal is held in tension with the common good, and both the common good and zeal are held in tension by the third, which is with order. With order. And some of you are going, yes, okay, finally. Let's, let's get to the important part. As a bit of an encouragement for those who are leery or guarded, Paul says, as I read and highlighted in, in the, my reading of it in verse 33, that God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. If you are guarded, remember that truth. If it is genuine, if it is real, if it is of God, it will be in order. It will not cause confusion, but it will be done rightly. And it's also necessary, as a reminder, for those who are a little bit more gung-ho. He is a God of order and of peace. He brings chaos and disorder into right place. He's a God of harmony. He's a God of unity. He's a God of right process. And his spirit is the spirit of order and peace and harmony and right process. That is our confidence, church. So if you're uncertain or you're afraid of any of the gifts, remember that these are, these are of God and they are God's to use. And they, and they will be done rightly. And so even though the vessel by which the Spirit moves is flawed and we're sinful, we don't have to be afraid or uncomfortable or overly concerned when the powers of the future age manifest themselves in the present moment. Genuine, Spirit-inspired tongues is empowered and directed by the Spirit who is himself peace. And his aim is to always build up the church into maturity. And so practically, this means that there must be clarity in the corporate place when tongues is present. There has to be clarity. 
And this is what he says, thankfully, in verse 27 of chapter 14. Could someone turn the air on a little bit, please? Sorry if you're cold. He says in, in verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. And then earlier in verse 13, he says that the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. And if there's no interpretation, Paul says, may they keep silent in the church and speak to God and to themselves only. See, Paul's concern for order and worship is primary, church. It's primary. Why? Because it's in the order and it's in the harmony that God is most glorified. If an unbeliever or even a believer were to walk into chaos and to disorder, how is God glorified and how is the church built up? But it's in the order and in the unity and the harmony that God receives the glory. Because truly, God must be among them. And Paul ends this portion of his letter and he says, but all things should be done decently and in order. All things should be done with good taste. That's that word decently. They should be done with good taste, fitting of God's people and in order. And so just, I know I've gone over, but let me just finish by saying this. So practically then, when we gather, what does this look like? What does it look like for the grace expressions to be present and manifest in God's church. I think Paul, we already read it, but that, that verse 26 then when he says that each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation, that all things be done for the building up. If any speak in a tongue, that there be two or at most three, etc., etc. Paul gives very clear instruction for how they are to manifest themselves. So this morning, I would say this. If someone were to, were to come, because what we do is we when we, when we gather in worship, one of the elders is always hosting the meeting. We're always leading the meeting. And so what we say to you is, if you have an, an unction, if you feel like the Lord has spoken something to you, come to one of us, let us weigh it, let us process it, let us find its fit, because even though you might be sensing it right that moment, it might not fit into what God is speaking and what we sense God doing. So bring it to us and we'll weigh it. So if a believer in this church came and said, I feel like the Lord has given me a tongue, what I would say is, is, have you prayed for the interpretation? Did God give you the, the interpretation? If they said no, then it would be on for me to either decide, will I, do I believe that God has given someone an interpretation? Because it's clear within Scripture that it is. If there is a tongue that is meant for the public gathering, there will be an interpretation for it. See, so there, there's order to it, and it's in the intent of this eldership team to ensure that order is maintained. And I just want to recognize, I know that there are many things that I did not say this morning. There are other aspects of this of, do you believe that tongues is just other human language? That's an argument that's out there. Um, do you believe that tongues is meant for the corporate? There, you know, there's a lot of different discussions, and I know that I didn't touch them all this morning. I would be more than happy to dialogue with you one-on-one -on -one if that was something that you had further confusion, um, you could bring a question next week. We can talk about it together. Uh, I just want to recognize I, I did the best that I could in the time that I had um, and with the emphasis that I felt like would be the most helpful for us. And again, I, I just I want to get to this place, church, where when we gather in this room that we're not surprised by the Spirit of God and then we walk through the door, it's like, man, God is here. 
And how God wants to use me this morning is my primary goal. Even, you know, in tangent with, in parallel with worshiping him and giving him the praise that he deserves. But it's just to say, God, use me as you would will. So that could be a revelation. It could be a prophetic utterance. It could be a tongue. I I don't know. It could be, uh, you know, a healing or something of that. But I just, that's the point that I want to get at. And you'll have to go back, and I'm not going to say it again because I've gone over, but you'll have to go back and listen to the two weeks that led up to us beginning our series in in tongues because I felt like that was just a bit of the the primer of what God wanted to do uh, in us in this season. So would you please stand with me? And again, just a reminder, if you have some questions, maybe there was a week that you can't recall, but you were thinking of, oh man, what, is, what do they mean by that? Just go back and listen to our podcast. You can stream it or watch it on YouTube. And, um, and we want to be as helpful in processing these things together because what I don't want to do is I don't want to go two, three years, five years down the road and still feel like we're in the same place as we are right now. So let's settle these things. Can, can we say just in agreement together with those who are part of this faith community Let's, let's be diligent to settle these things today or in the weeks to come, all right? Father, we thank you that you bring order to our confusion. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God who creates out of order, and is order in and of himself. And Lord, we trust you with these matters of our hearts that we feel are fragile, that we feel protective over, Lord, guarded. We trust you with them, Father. We call you, Father, today, and we, in doing so, we open ourselves to you. Lord, you know every intent of our heart, so even in that statement, we realize that there's an aspect of it that isn't true because you already know every bit of our heart, but it, it, is, it is a commitment of submission to you, Lord God, to say that we open our hearts to you this morning. We, we make it an intent of ourselves to allow you to do your work within us. Lord, you know that our desire is to see your church built up to be strong, to be resilient, to be a bright, shining light amidst darkness, Lord. That is our intent, And Father, we pursue these things for that purpose because we know, Lord, that these things necessitate clarity for the sake of the gospel. If nothing else, for those whom you are calling to be one of your own, Lord, it's important what we're saved into. And so, Father, I pray today for those, Lord, who are gripped with fear and uncertainty, who live out of a place of pleasing man, who do not walk in true freedom that Christ Jesus has brought, I pray, Lord, for freedom now in the name of Jesus Christ. May minds be unbound. May motives of our hearts be laid bare. And may true freedom be walked in under the glory of your name. Lord, we pray for those who have wrong motives, who have pursued wrongly the gifts of the Spirit for personal gain, for visibility, for pride of life. Lord God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would convict and humble those hearts. 
that your glory would be our utmost aim. Not to us, but to your name be all the glory, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray for this church that she would be vibrant in the Spirit of God, that she would be vibrant in the truthfulness of Scripture, that she would be vibrant, Lord, in the two, the, the Word and the Spirit, Lord. May both have equal place and equal importance, Father. Lord, we see these days in which we live and we realize we cannot live void of the Spirit of God. We need the Spirit of God. Spirit of God, fill your church. Fill your people. Fill your saints, Lord, we pray. Even now, Lord, let's just be open to the Spirit for a moment, church. Let's not worry about the time. Let's just be concerned with what God is doing. Spirit of God, we worship you, God. We welcome you. We are your instrument to use as you please. Lord, we trust you. We thank you for what you're doing with us, Lord God. We say together, amen.